The house at Crick Hollow stood silent. Fatty Bulger opened the door cautiously and peered out. A feeling of fear had been growing on him all day, and he was unable to rest or go to bed. There was a brooding threat in the breathless night air. As he stared out into the gloom, a black shadow moved under the trees. The gate seemed to open of its own accord and close again without a sound. Terror seized him. He shrank back, and for a moment he stood trembling in the hall. Then he shut and locked the door. The night deepened. There came the soft sound of horses led with stealth along the lane. Outside the gate they stopped, and three black figures entered, like shades of night creeping across the ground. One went to the door, one to the corner of the house on either side, and there they stood, as still as the shadows of stones, while night went slowly on. The house and the quiet trees seemed to be waiting breathlessly. There was a faint stir in the leaves, and a cock crowed far away. The cold hour before dawn was passing. The figure by the door moved. In the dark, without moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed, as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. Open in the name of Mordor, said a voice thin and menacing. At a second blow, the door yielded and fell back, with timbers burst and lock broken. The black figures passed swiftly in. The Way Lesser Inklings podcast exists to pay tribute to the great writers, thinkers, and philosophers of the 20th century known as the Inklings, and to inspire a love of great literature by mining the depths of great works to identify the good, the true, and the beautiful, and to exemplify and illustrate great storytelling. Welcome back to the Way Lesser Inklings podcast. We are on chapter 11, episode 12. I counted three times, so hopefully I'm on the right one. But I got the duty back. Uh, this chapter is A Knife in the Dark. Uh, and this has been Josh's favorite chapter since the beginning. So Josh, does that hold up? It definitely holds up. I I think that it's a chapter that I've found to be very, very different from what we've talked about so far. And I think it's it's a chapter that for the purposes of what we do on this podcast, I've really had a hard time with it. And I think we'll get into that. But I'm going to go ahead and jump in since it's... Uh, it's privilege is my favorite chapter that I'm going to do the narrative. And so when we look at this chapter as, as we left off, Strider has joined the party and the ring rates had attacked the, the village or the, the end of the prancing pony. And so the hobbits are on the run, but as the chapter starts, it flashes away from Bree and we get basically the the ring wraiths converging on Crick Hollow, the house that Frodo had bought that he was presumably staying at. And Fatty Bulger is holding down the fort, and he feels a dread creeping on him all day long. And as he's looking out in the night, he sees the gate seemingly open with an invisible, seemingly invisible figure coming in that's, that's in black. And uh, Fatty figures out that he needs to hightail it out of there real quick. So... He runs out while the while the uh, Black Riders beat on the door and ultimately barge their way in. But Fatty has set off the alarm, and so the Black Riders have to, to leave the Shire. And then we get transported back to what's going on, where where the Hobbits have had to the after an attack on the inn where Strider's plans had worked, and the the Black Riders did not find them sleeping in their room that they had that they had bought for the night. The, it's all scattered out. Their ponies are gone. There's a big scheme in the village. And so they, they're delayed on getting their start. And as they take off, 
Strider takes them out through zigzaggy paths out into the wild, and they they make their way across just desolate lands. That they're they're alone. They're in this marsh where bugs are eating them alive. There's this loud insect that's keeping them up all night. They're going crazy, and they're making for Weathertop so that they can see the lands and see what's going on. And finally, they make it there. And as they're looking around, they're scouting out the land. They find evidence of of activity there. The the ground is scorched and there might be a rune that would indicate Gandalf. But as they're looking at the top, they see black riders converging on the road from their vantage point at Weathertop. And so they get down and they decide that it's best for them to settle in for the night, a defensible position in a, in a dell off the Weathertop. And as night falls, they start telling each other stories. Strider is trying to, is telling them a famous poem to, to keep them, from being agitated and and to calm them down but ultimately the black riders find them and come into the dell and attack them where strider leads them with fire but it's it's a it's a bad night because one of the black riders pulls out his dagger as frodo's put on the ring so he enters the world where the black riders can see him and the chapter ends with frodo being stabbed in the shoulder by one of the black riders and I don't know. It seems a little tried to do narrative that way because this this chapter really is all about emotion, as I know we'll talk about. So, Jake, anything mm-hmm. I missed there in the narrative? Do you think we're there? Think we can start breaking this thing down? Yeah, I think you pretty well covered it. Um, there was, uh, and we'll get to it a little more, I'm sure, but like part of the narrative is in Bree where their mission is, is under subterfuge right out of the gate too because the ponies are let loose, mm-hmm. you know, as they're trying to have a, a quiet start, you know, they lose out on that. Um, but yeah, I think otherwise, yeah, that's good. And it is, it's a chapter that um, it really leaps off the page with, um, you know, with pathos as we were talking about earlier, you know, before we started the recording. Um, and so I think a lot of the tactics that we've used to, um, to dissect the story are, are a little tougher on this chapter just because um, the action is really what runs to the forefront. And, and what's interesting about that is because it, as we, you know, move from maybe more of a, a mythos to a pathos, none of the quality is lost in the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, this chapter in some ways, I, I definitely don't want to get off track because I think there's a lot to talk about here. But something occurs to me that we've we've been doing a lot of work so far talking about um, kind of kind of a slow writing style where there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of things going on under the surface. I don't I don't think that that is not the case. I think there's a lot going on under the surface in this chapter. But it, it's kind of a chance for me to. I don't know, something that's grinded my gears for a while. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to let it fly a little bit and talk about, in the past, I think I think a thing that we need to do as partakers or consumers in art, whether it be movies or music or literature, is I think it's important for us to not just look at style, but to look at substance. Style can be really important, but I think style needs to be set up for substance. And, and I've realized that a lot of the... A lot of the things that I thought were really awesome when I was younger, it's probably because they had some over-the-top violence or like some mm-hmm. rousing speeches or some things that made me feel something in the moment. But but a lot of times I think that wasn't earned. Uh, uh, something that jumps out to me recently is a lot of love for a show on Amazon that's called The Terminalist. 
So I watched the show, and, and I've heard things like I've heard this show was so great; it's the best show of the year. And after I watched it, you know, I've been I've been reading a lot of classic lit, lit, and I'm I'm not doing this like, you know, the nasally voice. How dare you like something like the Terminal List? But I there's a challenge in it. I think the Terminal List is the show that really just doesn't have any substance. It's it's a bunch of violence and a revenge thing. And I think that it would be easy. And I found my brain sliding in in this chapter to really being like dazzled by mm-hmm. the emotion of it, by the spectacle of it. And it makes it hard sometimes to look at what is the author. Like, I think that is one thing he's trying to accomplish here, but I don't think it's the main statement or the main thing he's trying to accomplish. And it can make it really hard to see it. You have thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, and so I think with that prelude, it's a good time to sort of jump into probably what we would consider is the main theme of this chapter and then maybe a high level view of what the main theme is and then probably jump into the first vignette in Crick Hollow. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we're on the same page here. As we've talked about there, there's really themes of death and life and mm-hmm. isolation and community with the ring rates, obviously showing death, right? And we'll get into why we think this later, but the others being life there really is a good and evil archetype going on here with the with the bad guys in Bree and the good guys trying to, you know, progress on the mission. So in some ways, this chapter really does do a good job of the archetype thing too, where where you have your bad guys and really for the first time we get them just really unveiled, unmasked. Mm-hmm. This is the bad guys. We see the like the power of the evil side kind of on display. Yeah, yeah. I think to add to that, I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, the, the geography plays a part with, um, Amon Sul coming in, but I don't think it's a coincidence that we get the fall of Gilgalad and the lay of Baron and Luthien mm-hmm. in this chapter, because those, both of those poems, um, equip the death and life themes that we're seeing here, uh, as well as the isolation. Mm-hmm. Like, I think both of those come into play in those poems that, that we're getting in the main story, but we're getting a historical perspective on them as well. Mm-hmm. So so he jumps in right off the bat at Crick Hollow, and I think there's a hint here that I'm going to give myself a little bit of a pass. I think it's okay to kind of bask in the powerful emotions in this chapter, because I do think Tolkien really explicitly gives us license to do that with how he starts the chapter, which is very different for many of the other chapters, he really starts it in and it's, it's almost like a thriller or, or like a kind of a scene from a horror movie. And so mm-hmm. Jake, I talked a lot about it in the narrative thing, but it, it, what do you, <laughs> do you feel the same thing? Like not intense is not even the right word. I think it's almost sickening fear. And in a twisted way, I'll say this, I felt almost attracted in a sense and I, that's an unbelievable thing that he was able to accomplish that. I can explain yeah. if you want, but where were you at yeah. at Crick Hollow? What do you think about yeah. it? I do. It's, it is an interesting scene because I think it's, um, I think for me it was, it was, maybe there is a sense of a thriller, like there's a heart pounding element to it. Um, and, and, but there's also just an utter dread. I think the, the setup of the, sort of like you don't get any kind of personage view. He writes that the shadow slips through the gate, but then there's three figures, one at the door and two at the corners. So you know what they're doing, right? They're, they're setting up to kill 
and he's he's <laughs> he's written you in um, to Fatty being probably the most helpless of the conspiracy, you know, the least adventurous, the least learned, the least engaged in the adventure, and so he's functionally helpless, you know, based on what we know about him with mm-hmm. these just mortifying evil on the doorstep. And so it, it's really hard. Like it's just word after word is engrossing. Uh, like with the, and I think with the utter dread for fatty, because I've read this many times and even reading again, I'm like, oh, fatty's done for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems like he's got no way to stop it. And and we've already seen, you know, Mary faint in Brie and, and mm-hmm. as this chapter goes on, I, I think it does show some strength of character that Fatty is able to keep his wits about him and get out of there. I, yeah. You know, this is what gives me license to feel. And, and I'll explain my being attracted point a little bit. But this sentence right here, it, it just grabs you. It, it says, the night deepened. There came the soft sound of horses led with stealth along the lane. Outside the gate, they stopped, and three black figures entered, like shades of night creeping across the ground. One went to the door, one to the corner of the house on the uh, either side, and there they stood, as still as shadows of stones, while night went slowly on. The house and the quiet dreams seemed to be waiting breathlessly. <laughs> it's it's poetry. It's It's an amazing thing where... There is no question that they come to kill. They have the sword out. They're going to beat the door down. They're invading on private property. There's, they they are in a hurry. It's it's time yeah. for them to figure out what's going on in the Shire. And I, I think you had mentioned it's interesting here that the the plan to us as readers, I think the plan for Frodo to buy the house and to go under the name Underhill has really seemed like almost a feeble subterfuge to us. Mm-hmm. But we see here in this chapter that it really did buy time and it worked and it yeah. split up the black riders so that right. they were not as dangerous in Bree. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is the same night as the assault, uh, at the prancing pony. And so, you know, we've, we've bought what four days, um, of journey time from, you know, from Crick Hollow to, uh, to the print to Bree. And so it did like it, it put three of them here. Uh, and, you know, seemingly, we, you know, we'll see in this chapter too, there's five on the road that are spotted converging at Weathertop. Um, and so that, <laughs> that leaves us one out there somewhere, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, who could be roaming, um, but we're not sure, but it is, it, you know, it does separate them, which divides their power. It also, um, it also is interestingly forcing their hand because I think as we move into this, like they, they make a power play um, in both locations. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's really interesting to see because they, as they assault the door at Crick Hollow, they, they call on the name of Mordor um, to, you know, for their domination to, you know, to basically take the ring. Uh, at least that's their objective. And mm-hmm. so, um, I think that's one of the big things in this, in this, um, good versus evil is that the, the evil in this case is completely brazen at this point. Yeah. And I think it is because they're confused. So, so if you look at what's happened, they, the hobbits seemingly disappeared. And I think the black riders were dividing the forces and trying to figure out what's happened. Because if you go back and li- remember what we said at the fog on the Barrow Downs, 
we do believe from extra writings that the Witch King, who's one of the Black Riders and their leader, had actually made some, had gone to the Barrow Downs and done some dealings. And I, I look at that as almost covering his bases because I don't think they know, they don't know where the hobbits are. And so there's some mm-hmm. left back to presumably, you know, question, look around in the Shire. There's some that are looking around the Barrow Downs, and I think some are probably sweeping the roads trying to figure out what's going on. And so it has bought time, and the enemy is confused. And there's a quote that Gandalf is going to use later in the story where he says, the hand that strikes first often strikes wrongly, or it goes awry. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's the ring rates really, they show their hand here, and I don't think they care. There's, There's one more deal that... I definitely wanted to mention it, Crick Hollow, and that is that when Freddie sounds the alarm and they have to run away, they say, "Let the let the little ones squeal, let them sound the alarm, yeah. yeah, let them blow. Sauron will deal with them later." The, it, mm-hmm. And it is again like the the enemy has messed up because he's really he's disregarded this people that's super crucial to his plans for world domination, and even still, they don't deal with it they they go away it's insignificant to him they they don't yeah. care about him it's not even enough they're just going to blast through the gates and never come back again it's yeah it's probably an interesting thing that as as full of malice as they are they are pretty mission-minded and the and the black yeah. riders are scary because they are doing one thing at this point they are trying to find the ring and that's all yeah. they care about so i think i think that adds to their terror because we've talked about the power of being on mission and and the enemy here really is focused but he doesn't know where to go. And right. and I think that's the, you know, the schemes of Gandalf and, you know, whatever messages Gildor send to unite people. Because the Black Riders, we've seen also, they get no help from the country around them. No, no mm. one in the Shire is telling them anything. They run into right. a brick wall at the, at the inn at Bree because Nob won't tell them anything. So they really do have to rely on who you know bad guys that they can pay off or themselves in their own senses whereas the good guys i mean we've seen the network stretch all the way across a few countries now we've had bombadil we've had gildor we've had gandalf we've had fatty bulger we've had tom bombadil butterbur like all this they're all together and of course strider yeah yeah and i i think in that regard it's it's important one that we commented much on early to as a reminder on the sternness of the hobbits, even though, you know, pretty much every, every hobbit that's not in the small party has no idea what these guys are or what they're for. They're still, they're clearly not there for the good of, you know, of the hobbit culture. And so like, it's taken them a long time just to find Crick Hollow and they've been in the Shire for, for days and days, mm-hmm. you know, they would have made it into Buckland, by easily by the morning that the four went into the old forest. Mm-hmm. And so for them to be at the door four days later suggests that they're getting no help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're trying or very to, little. They're, they're trying to find mm-hmm. a house, a little cottage and nobody's going to tell them where it is. Where is Baggins? Uh, get out of here. I mean, that's, that's what basically yeah. everyone's told them. And they, they couldn't unveil their power. I think at that point, because they didn't want to cause open war. Right. right. You don't want to band the country together against you. You're still trying to figure something out. And that really does work in there. I, th- I think that is an example of how Tolkien has led us to this point. He does not want us to just turn our brain off. There's a reason that he gives us this this incident at Crick Hollow, and it's not simply to feel terror. 
but it is to feel terror. And I'll tell you what I felt like. I think I think the way Tolkien writes, it's a it may be my depravity in a way. Like I can confess that I think is that I've always been just incredibly interested in the enemy, right? In mm-hmm. his schemes. If I think through, like Mouth of Sauron, the the Black Riders, um, you know, all of these characters, Saruman, Wormtongue all of these people I've always been super fascinated and I think it is because Tolkien withholds and that plays toward this being a chapter that just kind of always blew my mind is that it feels like they tell you so much here and yet they really don't and I think that one of the reasons for that as we get into it is that Tolkien again uses the word Mordor here as almost a death blow I mean he yeah he brandishes brandishes it like a weapon in this chapter and and when the Ringwraiths say it it I mean, it is really, really evocative. It's it's really a thing that just makes you think, man, these these guys are terrifying. And it's just yeah. a word that's on the edge of people's memory. We don't know what Mordor is at this point in the story, yeah. other than you don't want to know anything about Mordor. <laughs> right. And and I think, and I know we'll touch on it, we'll get to that more on later, and the way Strider deals with, you know, idle talk about Mordor and, and Wraith-like. I think the last thing that I wanted to throw in on this little uh, Buckland vignette is to tie it back to our big point, the the theme of isolation and community, because there's, right, we've talked about the struggle of, you know, the tyrant's hands here to find Crick Hollow. And so there is the juxtaposition of like Fatty's in isolation, but his escape is into community. Whereas the Black Riders here, their their assault is sort of in isolation. I mean, there's three of them, but like isolation within their camp. And and basically they have one play to make. And so I, I think that um I think that there's that theme. I think it's a really subtle theme. And and it, it comes around in Bree and again at Weathertop. But I think in this sense, the isolation is on the side of the enemy and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna keep foiling them as we look in the story. It's a thing to keep in the back of your mind is that one of the one of the enemy strategies is to constantly sow division and keep people off by themselves. He he does not want people to join together because the the ring race's greatest power is in the wild alone at night, and that's because they are they they can really amp up the fear and that dread that they bring in in front of them everywhere that they go. Yeah. And I also, and to, I mean, to bring that into a cultural light for us, I mean, that's precisely what the enemy or our enemies try to do. They want to destroy family. They want to destroy church communities. They want to destroy actual communities because when we're separated and isolated, we're easy to pick off. When, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're bonded together by a moral fiber or whatever it is, I mean, ideally we're bonded together by, (laughs) by Christ you know, uh, then there's there's a strength that comes with that and then working and depending on each other as opposed to just trying to dominate everything in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a real temptation to try to, to try to go it alone, to not be able to depend on anyone else or trust anyone else. And there's, there's a real pride in that. And, and pride is a thing that Sauron has in spades in this story is that he thinks he's the wisest. He thinks he's the most powerful. And so he wants to be the one that pushes the action because he doesn't listen to anyone else. There, there's no one that has advice for Sauron. <laughs> Sauron, mm-hmm. Sauron is the one that's calling all the shots. But as we look at how our, 
good people act like we've seen it with Gildor. We've definitely seen it with Bombadil and we're going to see it with Strider as it goes on is that there's, there is a lot of communication with good and there's a lot of asking for counsel. Like right there. That's what Gandalf does is he goes around and he gives counsel, but he also listens to counsel from Strider from time to time. You know, he, he wants to talk with Bombadil at the end of the story. There's, there's a lot of things. Elrond is, is presented as being very wise as we'll see him later. I think it really is a theme that we really see almost come up here. And this, this is the kind of chapter, like we've, we've talked about this before and kind of got some discussion you know, I think some people talk to you about it. This, for some people, this is like the first chapter of the book, and I think uh-huh. that I think that that's a sad thing. Like, one of the things I'd like to do here is, is say, like, the reason this chapter explodes the way it does is because of all the work and the themes that have gone up before this. And Tolkien, Tolkien does that thing where he's gonna he's gonna bring us to this crescendo, and then he really is going to slow it down again until he builds another one. And there's a rhythm in that that doesn't exhaust the reader. It makes you want to feel momentum and keep going forward. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. important. I think this chapter is, is the way it is and, and touches emotion the way it does because of the work that's been done with these characters already. And we're not very far in, but we do care about these guys and we know a lot about yep. them up to this point because he, he describes, he, he shows a lot of times instead of telling, he sets up geography painstakingly in this chapter too, mm-hmm. It's no different. You can feel the midgewater marshes as they're going through. And so that probably is a good professional segue to talk about the wild part of this chapter where basically it's the hobbits wandering around in desolation. So probably the skill, I know Strider's your guy. And so (laughs) it's, it's probably a thing to talk about, you know, his, his skill as a woodsman here and, what that has to do with the journey, like how, how that's protecting the hobbits besides maybe the obvious. I think you, you've talked to me about that. Just the idea of what Strider brings to the table for the hobbits emotions. Cause we are kind of an emotion in this chapter. You want to yeah. launch off there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's um, one of the big lines that stood out to me in this chapter is uh, when um when Strider recognizes the poem that Sam surprisingly recites, that uh, that uh, the the fall of Gilgalad, um, where he understands the story, he knows the full story, and didn't know that Bilbo had translated it. But the hobbits, it says that the hobbits at that point also recognize that he wasn't just a man of the wild, but he was a learned man, and so I think those two. F- pieces right it's a first unveiling of that for strider because we are so far what we've gotten is you know his roughness um you know he's he's called strider uh because of his long lanky legs which we talked about in you know in an earlier episode and so you know i i think the two pieces are really important i think it's his because if he was just a woodsman right he would know the paths and he would know the dangers of each path, you know, just, just in its nature, which is a good thing. But I think it's his learnedness too, that he understands his enemy. And so he understands his enemy because he's listened to the tales and he's read the stories and he's taking counsel on the enemy so that he knows exactly how to combat the enemy, um, in a place where they're extremely vulnerable um, I do think the woodsman element too, it, it's, I th- 
you know, Strider, I think probably, I don't think it's specifically written for us, but he wins a lot of points with the Hobbits when, you know, the first couple of days they see basically nothing except a fox, maybe a cousin to your friend in the Shire, Mm -hmm. uh, and a couple couple of birds, you know, and so, and and it, you know, and Tolkien kind of gives it, whether by Strider's skill or some luck, I think, you know, further reading would suggest that it's Strider's skill um, mm-hmm. because he knows the countryside. He's been exploring it for for this moment. You know, he's been a hunted man, and so he knows the lands, and when the time comes, he's ready for the time because he's prepared his whole life for it. Yeah, and it, it takes a lot of skill because as they leave Bree, you know, they they only have one pony, so they're it's slow, right? Cause they can't ride and they're, they've got all their stuff loaded up on them. They had to have been moving slow and clumsy and Strider is taking them and trying to lose people. that are undoubtedly following them and he's going to have to do it kind of on those people's home turf. You know, th- yeah. those spies that are out there are from Bree. And so they, it's, it's like their backyard and Strider, Strider knows the land even better than the residents of Bree do. And I, and I think mm-hmm. that does call to his attentiveness to the way that he really takes pride in his craft of being a woodman, a ranger. He he knows it seems like he knows where every rock is. You know that he yeah. he's out there and he scouted out the land. And it's interesting that you know there's there's a comment when they're gonna they're basically gonna cut across a big loop of the road because the road loops around the marshes. And one of the hobbits says, you know, he says we're gonna take out this big loop of the road and they remember back and go, well, the shortcuts don't turn out very well for us. And he says, well, you didn't have strider with you then, <laughs> you know, my, yeah. my paths always end up where you want to go. And that is his confidence that he's obviously going to take across this marsh a to avoid the road, but B because it would be difficult for, you know, for riders that are on horses to make it through a marsh. That's right. That's not a place you're going to be able to take horses. It would also be uncomfortable if there's another spy following to get through through a marshland, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's an element too where, as you know, as the one fleeing, uh, making it as uncomfortable for your predator, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is um, is a skillful approach, right? It's like I may be uncomfortable, but they're going to have to bear that same burden. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, it's something that just occurred to me, that we we know at this point that the hobbits are not wimps. You know, no matter what people's preconceptions are, Mary goes out trying to find the ring race in the dark. Frodo is super tough, and we're going to see again in this chapter how tough he is. Pippin's just down for the struggle. You know, he's, he's doing whatever, you know, happy-go-lucky the whole time. And Sam is just, you know, he's a dog, right? But in this chapter... Strider taking him through the marshes nearly makes them lose their minds. <laughs> you know, they're mm-hmm. they're not able to sleep because of these Neeker breakers that are making that you can almost hear the chirping. It calls him what yeah. an evil cousin of the cricket. And <laughs> right. And there are these these midges just biting all the time and you're wet. I mean, it's a it's a miserable thing that is described in the marsh, but what we don't get at any point is any anything from Strider about how difficult this is. Strider's right. just walking through, you know, so much the better if it's hard to go through here. That means we're not going to see anybody. And I think the hobbits have to see just his, his sternness and his will and his, his ability to really plod in a way. 
he's able to just go through gray lands and plod through and really not worry about his own personal discomfort. And right. that's what you want in a guide, right? He's going to take yeah. you to the right paths. He really is like the consummate guide here. Yeah. yeah. He almost makes him forget I, about Gandalf, I think, for a little while. Right. There's a I, <laughs> there's a little bit of a personal story, but I just when I read about the Neeker Breakers and the evil cousin of crickets, I remember, you know, when we were younger and shared a room in the garage of our <laughs> house we grew up in. If one cricket would get in that room, I'd be up all night trying to find it, <laughs> and it just made me think of how annoyed and irritated I was from one cricket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we watched that show alone, and in one of the seasons, while this guy's in his shelter, there's mice in there, and they're just scurrying around, and it it really it makes him lose his mind. Like he he discharges his whole bear alarm on these mice to try to get them to run out. He goes completely crazy. And, and yeah. So I do think of that. Like it, it is a real thing that you're cold, you're wet, you know, you're getting eaten alive by insects, and then you try to sleep at night, and these things are just just all over the place it's insane and one and you know this if you've ever tried to sleep once you hear it and it gets in your brain <laughs> you're done there's yeah. a, you know if you start hearing the pattern in a sound machine you're done and and i think that's them going going nuts here and so he does eventually lead them through the wild because of his skill and they go to weathertop and they had seen they had seen some flashes of light you know frodo and strider had as they were in the wild and they'd seen some flashes of light and were kind of wondering at what it was. And when they come up on Weathertop, they do see signs of a recent fire and they see new firewood stacked. And then they see, yeah. really, it looks like the whole top of the mountain's been on fire, essentially. Charred grass, all that kind of stuff. And Strider's trying to figure it out. And what he comes up with is that Gandalf was probably there. And we're going to learn later that Gandalf was there and that the black riders had made an attack on Gandalf at the top of Weathertop and that he repelled the yeah. attack with his, with his magic, which is something yeah. we rarely get a glimpse of. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know anything on Gandalf. I know he's a, he's a specter in the background here. I, this is another thing that just added to the, almost the, the mystique of this chapter for me because Gandalf has long been my favorite character. I make no apologies. Yeah. I know Frodo's yeah. better. But Gandalf's, my my heart always tells me Frodo or Gandalf, even though my head tells me Frodo. <laughs> yeah, I think um, really this is for me the Gandalf scene is more of a Strider. You actually made a comment on it on how he knows every rock is when he's on Weathertop. He notices a rock that shouldn't have been there, mm. and 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 I think it, it's it's an interesting thing because it also is it's a character play on both parties because Gandalf knows this. <laughs> Gandalf would know that Strider would find it, you know, and so his mark, and while Strider isn't a hundred percent sure that the mark is left by Gandalf, you know, he, he does, you know, he makes a pretty strong hypothesis, which does get confirmed later. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think it's a, I think it's a strong, I think it's a strong, um, indicator of their friendship and their knowledge of each other. Yeah. Um, I think, that, the, I think that's something that if you, if you have, if you're reading along for the first time with this and you've only seen the movie, I think one thing that in the movie portrays Gandalf and Aragorn as having mutual respect, like an admiration for sure. But in the books, it, pretty, pretty clearly Gandalf and Strider are best friends. Like they've spent yeah. 
they spent significant amounts of time together on the mission, you know, doing work, like talking to each other, communicating They're They really, really trust each other. And, and that, yeah. I think that does play it up that Gandalf left the rune on this rock that was out of place, knowing that hopefully, you know, yeah. hopefully I guess he does know cause he went back and talked to Butterbur. Right. So he, he does know they're out in the wild with Strider. And so he does leave a sign to say, yeah. Hey, I was here. And it's really faint because again, yeah. not trying to give the enemy too much attention, you know, they trying to keep them confused that Gandalf doesn't want them to know that he's leaving a mark for somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I will say too, again, to, to keep with the themes that we're seeing in the chapter though, there there's the isolation, right? It's a near miss with Gandalf is he's, you know, he's right in front of him. And so there's like, there's, and then the conjecture that Aragorn or Strider at this point kind of gives us is that, you know, Gandalf was here alone and it appears that an attack was made on him. And so I think, you know, you also get, uh, you get Gandalf's isolation in his quest to find the party, you know, as he's moving ahead, trying to find him, he, he kind of gets caught <laughs> by the enemy here as well. Mm-hmm. And it saves him that, you know, he'll tell us later that all of the, all of the subterfuge probably saves him because he would have unlikely been able to withstand the nine, but mm-hmm. they're split up because they're, yep. they're chasing around all over the place, not really sure where anybody is. And so it probably saves Gandalf's hide on Weathertop because there's, there's no way he would have been able to survive it if they had all been there. Um, and you know, they, it's pretty bold of them to attack him. I, I think it's one yeah. of those things where they know, or they definitely suspect that, that all roads are leading to Weathertop and so it is a place of a lot of danger. And I think this chapter really sets up for us that Weathertop is a place that you you really have to go because there's really nowhere else to go. There's mm-hmm. going to be times that they just have to take a risk, and this is one yeah. of them. And so kind of, you know, the chapter's pushing us toward this danger, and it really is in this background because the ring rates, the, the Black Riders are kind of left out of it again while Strider's taking them through the marshes and in the wild. But the, but he unlike the hobbits he doesn't start singing songs about you know the green dragon and stuff like that he understands what's going on and so as they come up and they they see the signs as they're looking over the top I, you know I thought the movie made a play on it where where basically like it was saying put out a fire because you could see it from miles away and the Nazgul came I think similar idea they kind of reversed it in a way but the the writers are a few like they're they're feet down lots of ways down on the road as they're standing on top of Weathertop. But it's pretty obvious I think that they see their silhouettes on the top of the mountain or their horses do. Mm-hmm. And Strider is really upset about that. He he blames himself that they stood there too long, that he was he had forgotten about them, you know, and he remembers quickly and then it's kind of what do we do? Right? If they've yeah. if they've seen us, what are we gonna do? And really there's no way to run. He he kind of explains that that there's nowhere to hide, that everywhere they go, they're gonna be out in the open. And so the best thing to do is get in a defensible position and that sets us up for really the the high point, the the really the craziest thing that's happened in the book so far. But it starts with them just waiting in the dark. You know, as anything that you're trying to, is trying to scare you, like we've had the huge action of Crick Hollow. We've kind of had wilderness isolation, 
And then we have this setup where they're just sitting in the dark, seemingly waiting, hoping that, hoping they won't be found. You know, and I, I guess it's possible. They're in a sheltered place, hoping that no one will see them. And so as they're doing that, the hobbits are agitated. You know, Sam says his thing as they start talking. He gives the a, a poem about Gilgalad. And, and that was, you want to talk a little bit about that? And then we'll we'll do Baron and Luthien a little bit and why you think it's here. We're probably quicker on Gilgalad. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so the setup there is uh, when Strider's explaining Weathertop or Amon Sul, he says that, um, you know, the legends say that uh, Elendil um, stood watching for the coming of Gilgalad uh, in, the la- in the days of the Last Alliance. So th- this is the alliance of men and elves to make their assault on Sauron's forces, um, you know, long ago. And then in response... Uh, I think it was Mary um, asks who Gilgalad is, and then Sam surprises everyone with the poem uh, about Gilgalad, uh, who, which was a, is a neat little moment because um, you know the story is sad, but it's it's a neat moment because it it gives us a couple of reveals. One that Sam, you know, is paying attention. Right, he he's he's always been interested in elves. <laughs> that he's teachable, that Bilbo's taught him this song, right? And, and that he's remembered it, uh, is really cool. I think the second thing that's, that's, that's a good reveal is just Bilbo's, uh, studiousness upon his return from his adventure, because basically all of the information, the reason that Frodo can be labeled an elf friend is because of Bilbo and the work that Bilbo's done. Um, and, and like, this is another reveal where, you know, Strider informs them that, you know, Bilbo didn't make up the song as Sam had assumed, but that he had translated it out of an old language, which is just a a testament to, to Bilbo's work ethic and his, you know, his, uh, intensity to unearthing lore and making it accessible. Mm. Yeah. And it's, I I think I'd, mistake a little bit sam sam does his deal as they're coming up on the mountain and then they go up there and do their thing on weathertop and there's this there's this interplay going on where you know gilgalat you you can't really tell the story without talking about mordor because yeah it was the it was the last alliance of elves and men where you know where the ring was cut off of sauron's hand gilgalad played a, he was the elf captain who played a huge role in that with the sildor and Elendil back in those times and so they want to talk more about this they they settle back in and they're back in this hollow at nighttime and and Mary they talk about food and Mary wants to go on again and Aragorn has this thing he's going to talk about like we should not talk about Mordor don't say mm-hmm. Mordor he tells Frodo not to sit at, at one point he Frodo says if I keep going this way I'm going to become a wraith and yeah. Strider like upbraids him don't speak of such things you know, don't yeah. say that. So I think as far as confusing stuff goes, I would highlight that is like that probably jumps out to the reader. What what's the big deal? I think I think I have a take, but I don't want to spoil it. What <laughs> and I, and also you know, if it's too hot a one, you could throw it back to me. But as as far as thinking about what's the deal with Strider not wanting them to say these words? Right? Mm-hmm. Cause cause in our world I think I think that seems like a strange thing. Like it almost is like yeah. 
he who must not be named, like Voldemort yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. is there real power in it? What what is what is going on here? What do you think Strider's thought process is? Yeah, I think my first instinct um, on the reread is he is concerned about spies. You know, he says that some of the animals are spies that, and that there's worse spies in the wild, you know, out in the wild. And so I think there's an instinct there. I also think, I don't know. I, I do think that there's an element um, with ancient lore with giving power. I don't think that, um, I don't think that Strider's afraid of the name, but I do think that there's a place. And, and I think we've seen that theme a couple of times. We saw it with Bombadil, and we saw it with Gandalf in Shadows of the Past. Uh, we even see it with Gildor, that in the night, um, you know, that that's not the place, um, or this time is not the place to speak of these evil things. Mm. Yeah, I think you, you hit on something with the first one that is pretty interesting, that I hadn't thought of that angle, that no one would be out in the wild talking about Mordor. And so I think to Strider's mind that anyone who heard that, heard anybody talking about that, that's almost like a beacon that, hey, these <laughs> these are the people you're looking for. Right? Yeah. Because they know, like none of these hobbits, nobody in Bree knows that they're being pursued by anybody from Mordor. Why would anybody except a ring bearer be talking about like the lay of Gilgalad or anything like that. It really is like, it, it is drawing a sign that there's no way, no one else would be doing that. I, th- I think that's an interesting point. I think another one, it almost, it almost ends like a thought to Roman, so, but I'm not going to okay. do that. Cause I, I got another one. I think <laughs> is this one. I think that we've lost the power of words, especially as people who are like quote conservative Christians it's interesting mm-hmm. to me that we demystify all kinds of words and we we seem to not think of their power when our god is described as being the word you know and and how really a lot of people who would like to do things like Sauron does in the world in the United States they play with words and they change the meanings of words all the time like i defy anyone no one knows what the word racism means anymore <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's been so polluted and in twisted around that nobody even knows what you're talking about when you call somebody that it's working off of some older idea. And I think maybe Tolkien is using some enchantment here to say that, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these words do have a power. It's not like they're an incantation, but later pretty famously Gandalf is going to, you know, Gandalf reads the script off the ring in the language of Mordor in the black speech. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's a tension drawn to it, you know, that this is a bold, strange thing to do and i think tolkien is yeah. trying to tell us that words are important and oh. tolkien is a man of words right that yeah. that's that's what he studied his whole life and so i think for him he's trying to give a window into the way his mind thinks too is that these words yeah. are important and i think he's particularly proud of the word mordor and it really is a great word for like mm-hmm. an evil horrible country if you knew nothing yeah. about the story mordor would make you feel weird it's that kind of word yeah, yeah. no i agree I think I think something too. I, I'm not I'm not making a claim on this particular passage with it, but it's just something that I know I've shared with you. Something that's kind of been on my mind a lot recently um, is just kind of this Western and Eastern thinking, where you know the the pro- the progression of the West has just been like empiricism over everything, that data trumps anything, and and I just 
I've grown up in that and I've felt that way for most of my life. And I'm just kind of, and I'm not trying to like, again, I, I, I do think Tolkien was extremely well-rounded. And so I'm just kind of trying to put my finger on something that's way beyond kind of my, <laughs> my education level or even my reading, mm-hmm. but, but you know, an Eastern philosophy holds more to, to mystical things, to spiritual things. And, and as Christians, we have to believe that, a big part of creation is unseen, is spiritual. And so as as people who've grown up in the West, who've and particularly in the modern West under, you know, under heavy empiricism, right? Science is real, right? Like again, not that that means anything either, but it's just basically like the facts tell you everything. It's like, well, we don't have a great handle on the facts because we don't we can't see everything that's going on. Yeah, it's a very it's, interesting to think about thing to think about that we you know Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that it's really the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen because the things that are unseen are eternal and the things that are seen are going to go away that they rust and rot and that that is an interesting thought that it's not that it's not that we become you know people that are mystics or new age but i right. think it is understand to understand that god is spirit that He's given us communication as a powerful thing, that emotions are a powerful thing, like our play in this chapter, but they do have to be governed by what is true. And, and I think that's the key. When, when you're dealing with invisible things and trying to put that in perspective, I mean, look, Christians are commanded to pray and to pray persistently, to pray, you know, that to pray praises to God. And a lot of times in our naturalism, I think that we think that we're just talking to the ceiling sometimes when we have mm-hmm. lack of faith. But to understand yeah. that, we have a God who we cannot see, who was made manifest in flesh, but that, you know, Jesus, the God-man who was in the flesh, is now back at the right hand of the Father. He's he. We don't see his physical body right now, and yet he's more real than anything we see and more real than mm-hmm. anything we hear. And there's there's something there. I. I think that's I think that is probably a really good like kind of scratching the surface of what Tolkien gets at with this stuff. It, it's very curious because you you see that you know Rowling in Harry Potter does I mean it does really make a play on that and it's played for humor in a way that you don't say Voldemort's yeah. name and at the end they end up getting traced because they're the only people that do say Voldemort's name you know so yeah. so she kind of turns that around and I think I think there is that play of but she she uses it as being kind of a ridiculous thing, right? That, yeah. and I think Tolkien uses it as a very serious thing. It's not tongue in cheek. It's not like oh, Strider's being a prude here or Strider's yeah. just trying to ruin everybody's fun. No, I think there really is danger in just haphazardly talking about it. You know, it, it recalls a passage I think that's in Ephesians where Paul says that that the sinners that that basically those outside of Christ they engage in things that we shouldn't even talk about. And, mm-hmm. and that makes me think, like, what's going on in Mordor is really something that you see. It seems the good guys here, it's stuff that you shouldn't even talk about. Like, mm-hmm. you should fight it, but you shouldn't talk about it. And I think that is that is an interesting thing in a direction I didn't really see us going here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I will give this to you because I know, I know you read, we both did, but I know you read the long lay of Baron and Luthien and mm-hmm. Christopher... And praise the Lord for him and the work he did. Yeah. So J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien's son um, edited and put out a lot of unfinished writing. 
And towards the very end of his life, he put out a few volumes where he had really grown as an editor. I think he was disciplined. I think those books that he put out, you know, the the Children of Huron and the, the Fall of Gondolin, and then he does one that's Baron and Luthien. And he gives this this astounding piece of writing that Tolkien yeah. did that's it's just it's a poem that's it's just stanza after stanza after stanza. And I think we get a short glimpse of it here. So do you want to kind of mm-hmm. bask in the glow of Baron and Luthien? I th- yeah. I know that's a thing for you, so yeah. I, I figured I'd throw that to you. Yeah, I think um so first, if you haven't uh, anybody who's listening, uh if you haven't picked up Baron and Luthien, um it's under J.R.R. Tolkien's name, but it's put together by Christopher. You should go get it. Uh, it <laughs> um, and just read the, you know, over a thousand line rhyming poem that also contains a full narrative. I mean, it it is the absolute power of word to affect someone. Uh, like, it really is. And um, it's a beautiful tale. And yeah, this, this one, what we get... Um, is a, is is really beautiful, and I I see so to to kind of tie it into the narrative that we have right now instead of nerding out on mm-hmm. deeper, <laughs> yeah, deeper Lord of the Rings lore or you know uh, Middle Earth lore is I, I think that there's a couple of things going on in this particular passage. So right, they're they're basically at their most fearful moment, and um, and so Strider in an effort to bring some calm to the hobbits nerves and to take their minds off of the, you know, the great fear in front of them, um, tells, you know, the lay of Baron and Luthien. And, and I think there's like, there's a couple of things here that are really stand out to me. One is that it's, it's a mighty tale, um, that does bring comfort because they're great deeds, there's great beauty, there's great heroism, there's great loving companionship, and right, and I think in this moment, as we've tagged, right, there's there's great isolation in our company, and to get a story of deep love and companionship is a great comfort at this harrowing moment, mm-hmm. and so I think, yeah, do you want to jump in right there? Well, it's, a, it's one of those things that I think it's moving to us, and I think there's pretty good evidence that that Strider himself gets carried away as he's telling this because this kind of shows this idea that Tolkien has wrote written a real legend and that our characters here are part of a bigger tapestry. And so what Strider pulls up short and does not tell the hobbits is that he's hoping that there's a mirror to the Baron and Luthien story, you know, where where Luthien the the beautiful elf princess who's immortal falls in love with this this just unbelievable man named Baron mm-hmm. who is brave, yeah. who's strong, you know, really just read the book, read, read, yeah. <laughs> read Baron Luthien. <laughs> He's really incredible. Yeah. And Aragorn's hoping that almost in a way that he, you know, he comes mm-hmm. down in lineage from them. Right. Right. That, that he's part of this story. This is a family story in a way, but it's, it's interesting because at the end of this as as Strider is explaining the poem to them, he says, in those days, the great enemy of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant dwelt in Angband in the north. And I think, you know, it's one of those things. It's easy to miss it. Why does Strider just go off and say Mordor here? And, and I, think, mm-hmm. I think the reason why is that he really is 
just taken away. Like that he is thinking about this this amazing story, this the bravery of Baron, the the heroism of Luthien, the the star-crossed lovers, you know, the the tragedy of what happens while they're trying to rid the world of an evil that tragedy falls on them and and it's such a bittersweet Tolkien thing, right? That Mm-hmm. That I think I I'd heard like in in this trilogy the the color that's mentioned most most often by far is gray, and that's mm-hmm. that's because this trilogy is a very melancholy type. Yeah. It's it really does have elements of like a of a of a tragedy of yeah, and, and we get that in this chapter is really for all intents and purposes our main character dies in this chapter, and and yeah. we'll find that it's it's a slow death that unwinds throughout the rest of the story. But what happens yeah. to Frodo here has consequences for him for the rest of his life and and so i think aragorn or strider here he talks openly about mordor and sauron right out here in the open and i think it is because he can't help it but he doesn't get carried away by bar songs and trying to have good times he gets carried away by the grandeur of his people and an Mm -hmm. idea and i think a weight of what he is currently trying to do he he knows now that it's his moment and that he's in the middle of this Right. That that was yeah, my I jump think, in. Yeah, it's good. And and it is his moment. And I think I do think that he's I think he's kind of awash in the lineage of his moment that, you know, he's from a line of of men with high moments. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's really important. I think it weighs on him. I think too that there's um there's the hope of, you know, we'll see it later, but we know like there's a hope of him being a shadow of Baron and Luthien with Aragorn and Arwen, that they're lesser than Baron and Luthien, but the hope is no less great. Mm-hmm. You know, the hope of companionship, the hope of him to, you know, to in essence steal an immortal, <laughs> beautiful woman um, by, you know, by being a great man of virtue. Now his task isn't set kind of unjustly by her father as Baron's is, Um and yet, you know, the, the, I think too, the, the, like in Aragorn's case, her immortality and her station is not lost on him at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a, he, I think it's a terrible thing yeah. to him that, yeah, that she gives up her immortality that really in this chapter, I mean, look at it. What is he dwelling on in a way that he has this great hope, but also there's hope that is going to bring death. Yeah. Death where it shouldn't be. Right. And that's a heavy yeah. weight. So, it is, and yet it, it brings him great joy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, as as we jump there, I think I think it probably is time to to take it to this conclusion. Where as soon as as soon as Strider stops talking, after he stopped explaining, then it says, you know, once again we're we're back in it. That it says that all seemed quiet and still, but Frodo felt a cold dread creeping over his heart now that Strider was no longer speaking. He huddled closer to the fire. So it seemed like you wouldn't want to build his fire to see, but Strider's explained that the enemy does not like fire. It's not their friend. Yep. And so really, if they come up on you, fire is one of the best chances you got because it right. it repels them. And so now we know that the enemy's advancing on them, that they see him coming into the, into the dell. And I will give kudos to Jackson. I, you know, although he mixes up some details – as he shows in the movie where there's these statues and just darkness and you can just barely see like the silhouettes Mm -hmm. of the hooded black riders kind of fade in from like the black crush 
and then the the score for Howard Shore just just blows up. It really is a scene that is is super memorable. It's a it's a thing. I think in the book it is played differently. I, I like what Jackson did with it. I think it would have been mm-hmm. hard to do this cinematically because it really is just blackness. <laughs> and you know, looking at a screen that's just blackness is not going to be very interesting. But in this scene, yeah. it, it's like they've got this ring of a campfire, and they see, you know, a moonlit night, and then just shadows. And really, the thing is the terror. And and yeah. so here's where we really get to life and death. I know you had mentioned mm-hmm. the the ring wraiths. So Aragorn describes them as they see him on the road, mm-hmm. and and he gets asked like, "Can they see?" And he answers right. that. So. He says something about their horses can see, but that they right. don't really, right? It's something yeah. about blood, right? Yeah. Yeah, is, is that they're they're drawn to the blood. Uh, they can sense the blood of you know, living creatures. And, and it's really fascinating because even in, in this scene, and in every, basically in every scene, the hobbits have a sense of them as well without seeing them, right? They can sense, and I think this is, right, this is where our life and death theme kind of comes to a head as well is that everybody on both sides can sense each other at this point without seeing and and, you know the black riders don't see at all but they they all know that they're around you know by in in the black riders sense they're sensing the life of you know of who they're trying to attack Mm -hmm. and and you know our our party is sensing the shadow you know, which, you know, in, in a sense, I think is sensing the death of their attackers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's yeah. what's your kind of take on that? Yeah, I think it comes in, and Frodo, it says that he thought that he heard a faint hiss as of venomous breath and felt a thin, piercing chill. This idea that they are sneaking up, that they are really, there's, you know, there's snake language there that mm-hmm. that's, you don't get that anywhere else, but this idea of poison, of just abject terror, and... Here they come, and it's interesting here. Remember what I said earlier that we know, Mary especially, like the hobbits are not weaklings, but what happens immediately mm-hmm. is it says terror overcame Pippin and Mary, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. They're yep. out of the fight. As the yep. as the Black Riders advance, Mary and Pippin just can't handle it all. So a call out to Sam here because it says Sam shrank to Frodo's side. Sam's love for Frodo is so great that although he yep. can't really do anything, he is going to go to his master and that Tolkien is so relentless with that theme. It's a line that almost seems like a throwaway. It's an easy thing to miss. And then we get what I thought was probably the most interesting part of the whole chapter. It Hmm. says Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold, but his terror was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow, nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield, not with the hope of escape or doing anything, either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. (laughs) it's, It's an incredible thing. It seems like, what in the world... But I think we've set it up well because what happens is all the forces are converging on Frodo at once. The ring itself yeah. knows it, the ring is a more powerful force than Frodo, and the ring itself yeah. is making a huge call right here. Yeah, the ring knows yeah. this is this is a better moment than Bree. Like this is yeah. we're going to put all of this malice and all of this force in, 
And Frodo, look, if you if you read that, and your mind as a Christian doesn't snap back directly to besetting sins and yeah. the shame of falling into temptation yet again and the hopelessness of thinking, man, I just cannot, I cannot stop sinning. I think mm. Tolkien nail, nails it here. And I think it's such a despairing feeling that no matter what Frodo knows, he knows it's not going to help him. Do we not? We know. Whether yeah. whatever it is, yeah. we know it's not going to help us. It's right. not. We can convince ourselves that it's neither for good or bad. But make no mistake, it's for bad here. Frodo puts on yeah. the ring because of temptation and because of evil. And what it does right. is, you know, it does what I think sin does is it opens you up to even more attacks of the enemy. Right. That it's a weak spot, and that weak spot becomes just a weak complete character you let a little bit in yeah. and you're open to the whole thing and here it is right yeah because right and i think you're on you're right on because at this point there's no way for him to be protected once the ring goes on there's no protection anymore they don't you know yeah i mean his friends are cowering in fear but strider's there you know and and even for himself he has no way to defend himself and mm. and his friends have no way to help defend him this is pure isolation, pure exposure, and, you know, and the enemy's strong play to, again, like what we said at the beginning, the enemy's strong play to isolate and pick us off. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what sin does. Sin wants Mm -hmm. to isolate and pick us off. Yeah, it breaks the the bonds. It breaks the bonds of community. He's out by himself. No one can see him. His community can't see him at all. But who can see him is this terrifying deadly king as Gandalf would call him later he he's yeah. the witch king and he's haggard and he sees full Frodo completely now there's no guessing this is the one time that we've seen in the narrative where the where the black riders know exactly what they want to do because he sees him and he takes action and he walks right for him and it's it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing how you know how this works that it really does expose you that I think in some ways it's kind of like Adam and Eve that what they did is they wanted to take the apple so that they could know good and evil like God did. In a sense, yeah. one of the, one of the things that the ring works on is that there, there's this idea of sight, right? There's this idea of being able to hear. And we know way later in the trilogy that, that the ring does give you understanding of the enemy, right? That, mm-hmm. that it gives you understanding. It, it gives you their languages. Like you can... You can hear them even though you don't understand the black speech. And in this case, what it does is it just totally exposes him. But there is something here, right, that as as the Witch King comes forward, Frodo can't hold up to them at all. He throws himself on the ground. And in a sense, I would say, doesn't he pray? I think mm-hmm. I think in this story, because he, he cries out, Elbereth, Gilthoniel. And, mm-hmm. and then he does he does try to strike at the feet of the enemy, foreshadowing for what another hobbit's yep. going to do to this king yep. later on, right? I I, I don't yeah. think I ever saw that before. You know that it's there right. that like his fate is sealed. He seems like he's so strong here, but a hobbit who doesn't have a ring on is going to strike at his feet later, and he's in mortal he's he's in really immortal danger at that point, right? <laughs> so yeah. thoughts on this crazy scene because what happens is that you know as he's exposed now the the ringwraith is able to stab him with this blade and the chapter ends with frodo 
basically pulling the ring off and he sees, you know, he sees that Strider, you know, he sees what's going on as they're being chased off, but he basically is holding the ring in his hand under his body and he's, yeah, he seems like he's done for at the end of this chapter. Yeah. It's almost like take a breath. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. But that didn't make for good radio. So, (laughs) yeah, I know. Uh, It's, it's, uh, it is striking too that even in, in the last scene too, Frodo does fight back enough to take the ring off, you know, because if he doesn't, you know, and obviously the story goes on, but if he, if he doesn't, he's gone. They can't mm-hmm. find him. He's going to slip into, you know, what he joked about earlier mm-hmm. into the Wraith world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and it's not, a, you know, it's very far from a joke now. Yeah. Yeah. So we end in a really dire situation. And yeah, I, you know, I hope as we've gone through this that it does shed light on why this chapter is so beloved to me. I will tell you, even even in talking about it again, it's easy to get just wowed by the by the craziness yeah. of that scene and that sort of thing. But I, I think it's probably it's probably time to shut it down. Did you yeah. have anything you left laying around, or is it time for thoughts to roam on? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. I think all my all my notes are <laughs> packed up. <laughs> well, I'll uh, I'll go first this time, and I'll and I'll make it short because I was just there. I I do think that. This chapter is about life and death in a lot of ways, um, mm-hmm. and that I think isolation and community go along with that. I think that they really are, really in a Christian understanding and in Tolkien's understanding, they're they're two sides of the same coin. That to be isolated is to invite death, right? And yeah. to and to be in community is to live. You know, whether it's a tavern with your friends, or you know, marriage with kids, like that sort of thing. As it goes on, I think in this case, I would say that it's a good thing to remember that temptation can seem overwhelming in the moment, but that we don't, we don't have a magic ring that's exerting its will on us at the same, but what we do have is our flesh and, and an enemy that tells us lies and that we want to believe those lies. But it's a good thing to remember that when we're tempted to remember that temptation only brings de- death. James says that really clearly that temptation gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. And, what Frodo shows us here is that to give in the temptation, even when it seems like there's no way out of it, if he had just simply not given in, then the ring race would have had a really hard time doing anything here. And really, in the mm-hmm. in the way our story goes, if Frodo had not given in to temptation, he would have lived. But instead, yeah. he does. And this sin does do what sin does. The wages of sin is yeah. death. And yeah. Frodo, Frodo takes a wound here that that does really just sap all the joy out of life for him. This is a, this is a deadly wound. And so that's my thought to Roma. Don't give in to temptation. Mm-hmm. He needed to pray before he put the ring on. I, yeah. I think that would, that would be the case is that our, we don't want to pray after we, I mean, we do want to pray after we've fallen and we want to repent, but it's better to pray beforehand and to ask the Lord to deliver us from t- temptation and believe yeah. that he's actually going to do it. So there's my yeah. thought to Rome with pastory preachy yeah. as always <laughs> yeah that was a good thought to roam with yeah my thought to roam with is um gonna be tied back to uh the use of words and you know strider's um rebuke of the hobbits for speaking mordor too loudly or joking about you know becoming a wraith and i think um you know 
And so the reminder here is that, that words do have power. Even, even though in our culture, a lot of words have been um, cheapened. Um, and even with, right, like <laughs> there's a quick aside that, you know, Tolkien gives us in, again, a side uh, story of Baron and Luthien, over a thousand lines of beautiful words to convey a story, you know, and we see something cool on Facebook and click a button that says like, you know, and so <laughs> that's a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit jokey, but at the same time, I think it says something about our culture that we've cheapened words. Um, and, and, you know, we, you know, we serve uh, a God who's created languages, who's created meaning in the earth, um, and, and words to describe that meaning have power. And so I think that's something, especially as we, with what we're doing, particularly in this work of literature, but with any work of literature that we're approaching, the words have meaning, right? Exegeting a text, whether it be biblical text or literary text, like it has something to say. And so I think my reminder to our listeners is, is one, to remember that words have meaning as we're reading, to pay attention to little words in reading, also to pay attention to the words that we use around other people. Mm. I really like that. Uh, you know, in, in signing off here, this is our longest episode, I think, by quite a ways. And a little joke to end with, anybody who's ever heard me preach, it, you should have known what you were in for as soon as you do. This is my favorite chapter. Um, and so I'm not going to apologize, but, you know, if you need to break it up and you and you did, I hope you listened and I hope you stuck with us. And we'll see how this whole thing unravels next time on The Way Lesser Inklings. Join us then, please. <laughs>